You're listening to audio from Restoration Church. If you enjoyed the message and would like to get connected to our church, follow us on social media at Restoration Cambridge or at our website, restoration-church.ca. Send us a message and we would love to hear from you. It is my understanding that this summer, I'm very jealous of this, Someone, some people in our church are going to be going to the nation of Italy this summer. I'm very jealous of this fact because Nikki and I have been to Italy before and we went to Rome. We were in some different places and we went to Rome and we saw Rome and when you go into the city of Rome, you enter the city and it's, it's, it is a visual like smorgasbord. It's a visual buffet of culture and values, architecture, and history as we walked these roads. Every street, every corner that you turned down was a new, was, was something new that represented culture and values of the Roman, or the Italian people now, but historically the Roman people. The culture, values, and history was on display everywhere you looked. It was beautiful. And everything that was there through the architecture and history, from the Colosseum to the room, I'm just laughing at the screaming going on in the background. I have no idea what's going on, but assume it's everything's under control. Um, uh, everything that you've seen from the Colosseum to the Pantheon to the Vatican, everything that was there was screaming out, like, this is Rome. Cambridge doesn't have quite that same flavor. <laughs> Not quite, downtown Galt. <laughs> There's the coffee culture. This is Cambridge. It's not quite the Pantheon. It's close. So the problem, the reason I'm jealous, we've been to Rome. We went with a group of high schoolers. And I was one of the leaders. There were about 15 high schoolers walking these streets. We went for a couple of weeks. We served in a kids' camp missionary that we had supported in a previous church. And uh, we, we had you know, fixed up the camp and, and, and ran some kids' camps for them, which was great. But then at the end, before our flight, we took a couple days in Rome. Show the kids, we want to see Rome. We were there anyway, so let's see Rome for a couple of days at the end of this mission trip. Well, this visual buffet that I so enjoyed. I remember it was the second day, and we're walking around, and someone, who will remain nameless, because some of you will probably know who this person is, I hear from the back, as I'm leading them to the Trevi Fountain, world-renowned, they say, Aaron! I don't think it was like this, but this is how it was going in my head. When are we going to go shopping? <laughs> and I'm like, Lord, give me strength. You know, give me strength. I, we are leading them to a historical delicacy. And my response to them was like, like, you can go to the Cambridge Mall in your own time when we get back, Okay. I think we did go shopping. 
It just didn't translate. The, the things I was seeing, for me, was like, wow, this is history and culture, and these are the streets that the Apostle Paul walked, and you just felt it, and it was just like a sacred place, and for them, they're just, they wanted to get gelato, you know? Like, they wanted to get gelato and go shop, <laughs> get some trinket that's going to be broken when you get home anyway. Just didn't translate. There's two very different reactions to this visual smorgasbord of the city. It's funny because today we're going to be looking at, in Psalm 48, this is a description of the city. It's not Rome. Ironically, though, it's the city of God, uh, which Rome has sometimes been called, but it's the city of God. And through its, it's going to give descriptions, through its culture, through its values, it's going to scream at us, this is God. This is what he is like. These are his values. This is what he looks like. This is God. Through the description of the city, and interestingly, not all are going to respond to the same. So if you've got Psalm 48, this is what, it's, this is what it says. Let me, let me read. I'm going to read through the whole thing, and then I'll walk through it after. It says this, Psalm 48, Great is the Lord, greatly to be praised, in the city of our God, his holy mountain, beautiful in elevation, is the joy of all the earth. Mount Zion in the far north. Now, this, this is, there's some confusion about that phrase. In your passage, if you have an NIV, it's going to say something about a Mount Zaphon, which doesn't mean in the far north. I'll explain that in a second. The city of the great king. Within her citadels, God has made himself known as a fortress, or how I think it should be translated, God is within her citadels. He has made himself known as a fortress. For behold, the kings assembled, they came on together, and as soon as they saw it, they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight, trembling, took hold of them their anguish as of a woman in labor. And by the east wind or the gale storms, you shattered the ships of Tarshish. As we have heard, so we have seen in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever, Selah. We have thought on your steadfast love, O God, in the midst of your temple. As your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is filled with righteousness, and let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgment. Walk about Zion, go around her. Number her towers, consider her ramparts, go through her citadels so that you may tell the next generation that this is God, our God forever and ever. He will guide us forever. God, now I pray that the Spirit would come into this room, that he would fill every heart, that we would be convicted about what's in our own hearts, that as we see you in, 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 I believe what is present day, that this gathering here is a picture of Zion in Psalm 40. This is where the people of God gather and where the presence of God is in this world. This is the description of Zion. God, may now we be convicted as we meditate on things like our thoughts filled with love, your love. Are actions like the right hand of righteousness? Because that's what this city is. That's what people see. And they say, this, this has to be God. May we change what needs to be changed. May the Holy Spirit show that to us. And may we get a great picture of God. 
May we, as we see all of the the architecture and the culture and all of the things that we've experienced as we took a cup into our hands and, 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 and drank juice and ate ate a cracker and as we sing songs and as we, as we shake hands and, and pray with one another, Lord, may this all point to you. I pray that this would be such a day of worship to you. And again, as I've already said, we failed if, if each and every heart doesn't come out of here and say, well, at least I've seen God. And I may not respond well to that, but I've seen him for all he is. It's not about Aaron, so... Lord, I pray as John the Baptist prayed that, that I would decrease, that you would increase right now. That I would decrease, you would increase. Yeah, God, we pray for all these things in your name. Amen. We've been going through a series called The Nation's Rage. And um, the last three weeks, if you've been following along, whether online or you've joined us here in person, you've been following along that a couple weeks ago, we took a look at Psalm 46, and last week 47, and then today 48, we're going to conclude it. We're going to conclude today, and we've got some other things coming, which we'll let you know about soon. Psalm 46, though, makes the statement and introduces this concept. It says, the nations rage, the kingdoms totter. And Psalm 46 is, is like this description that, that, that everything seems to be coming apart at the seams. And every time you turn on the news or the, the news channel, you, you, you start to see that, right? You, everything seems to be coming apart at the seams. And the things that you thought the world w- was holding the world together seem to be coming apart. And that's what Psalm 46 is all about. It's, as I use the word, it's, it's, like, it's like the world is being uncreated. Psalm 47, last week, Colin taught on, it says, you know, take, take, ho- take heart, it's not like everything's being uncreated and, 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 and there's no plan behind it. That there is a king over all the earth. There's a king over all the earth that holds everyone accountable for their actions. Especially those who are in leadership, the kings of the earth now. There's a great king over all the earth. And today it crescendos to this Psalm 48, a description of the city of God. And what do we learn from that? Now, I... Grew up in a Christian family, going to church, good old Baptist church. And I'd heard the word Zion before. I don't think I had any concept of what Zion is, though, when I grew up. I knew it was the name now. I know it's the name of, ba- of a basketball player. Or one of my favorite bands when I was in high school, Christian bands called P.O.D., if anyone was a P.O.D. fan. Andrew? No, he just laughs. Forget it. Forget it. Sorry, it's P.O.D. It's a great band. They had a song called Set Your Eyes to Zion. And I could quote every word of the song because in my high school days you turn up the bass to 11 and you just let P.O.D. sing throughout the streets of Chatham-Kent. <laughs> I don't think I had any clue what Zion, what they were talking about though. Set your eyes on what? I have no clue. Zion really isn't used in the New Testament much, but it is filled throughout the Psalms. So what is Zion? And in, granted, there is a little bit of confusion and unknown, uncertainty as to what it is. I believe what it means, as it says in verse 3, as it says, Great is the Lord, greatly to praise the city of our God, His holy mountain, is beautiful in elevation, joy of all the earth, Mount Zion, which I'm going to 
Do you want to say it? It says in the far north in the ESV. I don't believe that's the right translation. It talks about another mount in contrast called the Mount Zaphon in the city of the great king. God is within our citadels. He's made himself known as a fortress. And what is believed that Zion means is fortress. At least Zion became the name of the mountain or the hill, really, that one of the hills that Jerusalem was built on. And David built his fortress on that hill. So whether Zion meant fortress or whether it came to be known as a fortress, because that's where David chose to put his fortress. And of course, because the fortress was built there, the Psalms are filled with these, these suggestions of Zion. It's synonymous with protection. Like Zion is where you go for refuge from the raging world around us. That's what Zion's all about. This is where we go for refuge from the rage. It's strong. It's a fortress. This is where we go to be with God. Now later on, Zion became to have a greater meaning than just this little fortress. It became to be known as the, the whole city. Jerusalem became to, came to be known as Zion, the city of the king, the city of God. It says, Zion was the joy of all the earth, beautiful in elevation, which is weird because you look like, why was Zion so beautiful? Like, it wasn't the highest mountain. I don't even know if it's as high as Alps Woods down here where we've hiked before as a church. You look at pictures of Mount Zion in Jerusalem, it's not the highest. There's, there's literally mountains surrounding Jerusalem that you'd have a better hike at than Mount Zion. So what made it so beautiful? What made it the joy of all the earth? wasn't the highest mountain. What made it this beautiful, secure experience? Well, I believe the clue is found in verse 3. God is within her. God is there. The presence of God. That's what Zion came to mean. It's beautiful. I, want, I need to be there. Why? Not because it's a great hike. Because that's where God is. That's where the presence of God is, where I can have refuge from the rage that's going on in my life. God is within her. Zion was the city of God's presence. Psalm 132 says the same thing. The Lord has chosen Zion as his dwelling place. Now I need to answer this question because it says Mount Zion in the far north, but anyone else using NIV? Does it say something about Zaphon there? Yeah, it does. It's just kind of weird. However, Mount Zaphon was another mountain on the coast, which is much higher and more beautiful than Mount Zion. But what Mount Zaphon was, Mount Zaphon was was where people would go to worship another god called Baal. So you go into this beautiful mountain, they go up high on the mountain, and there's a Canaanite belief that that's where where you're to be with God. That's where you find refuge from the rage of your life. That's where you go to be with God. This Mount Zaphon. Zaphon. It was much more majestic. Would have been a better hike up the hill than Mount Zion. But it says, Mount Zion is the one that's the joy of the, all the earth. It's the one that's beautiful in its elevation. I think what's going on here is it's saying Zion is the true Zaphon. This is where you go to be in the presence of God. This is where you go to find refuge in the raging world. And the point is, it's in the presence of God is the protection that you seek because that's where God is. And he's made himself known as a fortress.
So it wasn't just the physical place because there, was, there came to be much more profound meaning behind Zion that it was this place and they would look at Jerusalem. But now, of course, thousands of years later, what we know of is the presence of God doesn't reside in a place. Where does the presence of God reside? Where does the presence of God reside? In us, the people of God. And so as we read Psalm 48, we're not like, I'm not telling you, you all need to now go take a trip to Jerusalem to go and be in the presence of God. No, the description of Zion applies where now? Here. Amongst us. So when we see the citadel and the fortress and the presence of God, what it's saying is this is a description of the church. This is Zion, the kingdom of God made manifest here on earth. This is where the world finds refuge from the raging storm around it. Do you understand? It's in the presence of God. Jesus says something similar, right? Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount said, you are the light of the world. What else, what else did he call his disciples? You are what? A city on a hill. This is where the presence of God is. This is where people find refuge from the raging world around them. Zion is the heart of the renewed people and the restored earth. This is the heart of the ethics of God. This is where we proclaim that God is king and we follow him in our ethic. Psalm 15 says, Who shall dwell in Zion? The one who walks in integrity. You might have experienced in your life corruption, lies, slander, but it's in the presence of God that says, this is where you find refuge from all of those things. This is where you find integrity and the truth. That's why more so than when there's slander that happens in the church, it's worse than slander that happens in the world because this is where people are supposed to find refuge from those things. This is where the world can see what it's supposed to be like to be the people of God and to follow him. This is where people are supposed to see God. One of my favorite passages in 1 John chapter 4. We're going to get into this a little in a second. But you know what it says in 1 John chapter 4? It says no one can see God. But you know where they see God? You know how they see the love of God? Not praying that God would give a vision in the sky. You know where people see the love of God? By the way that we treat one another. That's how people see God. This is Zion. The people of God. I think if we took that seriously, I think the world can't help but notice. Man, something's going on. Some would be curious. Some might feel threatened. But this is weird. Ironically so, in this psalm, that's exactly what happens. Look at verse 4 to 7. For behold, the kings assembled... They came on together, and as soon as they saw it, they see the city. This is where God is. They see the city. Now, did they see protection? They see this is the place where I find refuge? What do they see? They just shout it out. What do they see? It's not protection. What do they see? A threat. This is a threat. It says they were astounded. They were in panic. They took to flight. They started trembling. The imagery is of a, a woman who's in labor. 
or the, 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 the ships on the sea scared of the stormy wind. And what that means is basically what was, it's drawing this imagery of Phoenicia, which was, which was a, a nation long ago, Phoenicia, who built these amazing ships that were supposed to be indestructible, like Titanic-esque. But you go on the Mediterranean Sea, and it takes one really powerful storm to topple them all over. See, they thought they saw the power of God that we find as protection. They saw it as a threat. This is not power that I can control. This isn't power that I can manage. Kind of what Colin was talking about last week. This is not power that I can coerce. God says, I can't be managed, I can't be controlled, I can't be coerced. I can only be trusted. Right? I can only be trusted. It's this visual display of impenetrable power that they don't have the power to usurp. See, many people have viewed the people of God, I think, Man, the church can go wrongly when people start coming into the church, into the people of God. And they view the, the people of God as a place that I can control. Oh, good. Here's a place that I can bend to my will. They can sing all the songs I want to sing. They can do the things that I want to do. I'm going to get into leadership in this church. and it, Man, it's going to take off once I'm there. See, see the people of God as a place that I can control, I can take advantage of. However, but the idea of submission to God as king, that's a threat. Because it's power that I can't usurp. It's power that I can only submit to. It's power that I can only trust. <laughs> Man, I, I've been there before too. Like I've, I've, been in, I've been in churches where I walk in, I'm like, this is, if only I was here. Right? Think of what would happen to this church. How could I change, change hearts in this church so that it, this church would be rocking? See, if our view of a church is, you know, you, you come into a service with the sense of I can bend this into my will, it's just not going to end well. You view church as like, here's, here's a church that I can bend to do what I want it to do. It's just not going to end well. Yeah, if what we are to be as a church, really simply, in everything that we do, including me, like we're supposed to point to God. This is, this is God. Through communion, through, through, through a preaching, through a fellowship, everything that we do, this is about God. This isn't about rest, Restoration Church. I've always had the view of Restoration, I don't know how long Restoration Church is. Restoration Church won't last forever. It's not good. Not, I think so many churches have this view, it's like, how do we last as long? No churches, no churches last longer than 100 years. There's very few of them, right? Those of you who know church history, very few of them last longer than 100 years. You might think my home church that was, that was, a, that was a, a pillar will last for, it just won't. It's not about the church. Everything we do points to God. It doesn't point to like, this is what we can do for you. This is what God has already done for us. And so everything that we do has to point to him. That's why verse 12, 12 to 13 says, walk, the encouragement is to walk about Zion. Go around her, number her towers. See, see all of her successes, all of her ramparts, the security that go through her citadels that you may tell the next generation that this is God. You know, I, I'm so thankful for this church. 
But this is the work of God. I get so consumed in my own success, trust me. Those of you who do Enneagram, I'm a three. I crave success. Scott, Scott was like, yeah, I know you are. He, he knew. He, he, he's like, yeah, yeah, I could tell. I could tell. I can tell. Aaron, you care too much about your own success. I do. This isn't about anyone's success. This is about what God has done in us. And that's what we point to. That's why I said several times in the service, it's because it's on my heart. This, even this service is only a success if people see God. If you walk out of here like, wow, that music was good. Preaching was good. We've, we, haven't, we haven't really done what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to see God as you walk about. Okay, I gotta end. I gotta keep going. I'm almost done. Get in there, get in there. The kings see God as a threat. Power I can't control, I can't manage it. There's another people who approach in verse 8. As we've heard, so we've seen. We've heard about this city. We've seen it in the city of the Lord of hosts, in the city of our God, which God will establish forever. And then in verse 9 to 11, really kind of what I want to dig down into here today. This is the culture of the city. They, they begin to address God, and this is what the city's like. This is what we do in the city. I think it's really practical for us as a church. We look at, this is what the culture of the church is. If people see, and they, they have to be like, this, well, this is God. This is God working through his people. God must be here. First one is this, verse 9. We've thought on your steadfast love, O God. in the midst of your temple. Culture of the city. Love fills our thoughts. I think it's really profound. It's easy to say. Love fills our thoughts. The love of God fills our thoughts. We fill fill our thoughts with a lot of stuff, don't we? We fill our thoughts with a lot of stuff I'm assuming that most of the things that we fill our thoughts with are not the love of God. It's probably anger, frustration. You know, if you were to take an inventory on what has filled your mind this week, would it be love? The love of God? I mean, that's what it says. It's the first part about the culture of the city. It says, we've filled our thoughts. We've thought about on your steadfast love, oh God. Now, I saw a quote this week that something along, I'm going to paraphrase it, something along the lines of, because uh, sometimes our, we, and we got family chats on WhatsApp or something like that. We, we do. Trust me, we don't really encourage each other with the love of God. We, we post Twitter captions to get angry about, right? Anyone else? Anyone else? That's what we do. It's really not very healthy. And then we're like, how stupid. How stupid are they? You know, so I, I, someone once said that really rebuked me and said, you know, if your mind is filled with tweets, your life will be void of charity and full of contempt. You know, if we're filling our thoughts with hot takes, or tweets, probably not dwelling on the love of God in our thoughts, right? That's not a profound thing to say. 
We have to wrestle with that. As, as, as people come into our church, say, man, what is on this church's mind? Is it love? Why do we do that? Though? Like, why do we fill our minds with the love of God? But I think as we fill our minds with the love of God, we're filled with confidence in the midst of a raging world. We're not filled with fear. It's really hard to love if you're full of fear, which is this. I'm not, I'm not saying that to guilt you. It just is. It's hard to love. It's hard to give your life away if you're so consumed with losing it. Right? How do you give your life away to someone? How do you sacrifice your life when you're so consumed with a fear of losing it? It's really hard to love if you're full of fear. And again, I, I say that not as if like I'm, I'm telling you do this. Like I'm saying the same thing to myself. If I'm full of fear, how do you, how do you sacrificially love people? How do you give your life away if your thoughts are filled with the fear of losing it? 1 John 4 says this. I love this passage. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God. And God in them. This is how love is made complete among us so that, is the reason, we have confidence. We have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we're like Jesus. There is no fear in love. But perfect love drives out fear. This is why we think of love. Perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. And we love because he first loved us. See, some of you struggle with this. To a degree, all of us struggle with this. You're filled with shame and guilt about things you may have done in your life. Things that you're still suffering consequences of and you're just full of shame because of that. And it's hard to believe that this God would love you because the love that you've seen manifested in your life cast you out because of it. Left you to deal with it. Blamed you. And you're full of shame and guilt because of it. You feel dirty. You feel useless. You feel like at any second God's going to punish you for it. That's not love. You are loved. It's that greatest truth that motivates us in this life, that you are loved. Not, how you, not because you can manipulate God's acceptance, because he loves you. Now, there's an illustration you've probably heard from a man named Matt Chandler. Uh, told a story that I heard. You, you might have heard this story before. It's kind of one of those that pastors kind of pass around. Uh, Matt Chandler said this is the worst sermon he's ever heard. Okay? The worst sermon he's ever heard. He was at a youth retreat. He said, the worst sermon I've ever heard is this. What they did was the pastor gave the person out front a flower. You go, Andrew. I don't have, I, it would be better if I had a flower. I don't have one. Then he had the entire audience, hundreds of people, pass around that flower. You know what that flower looked like at the end, right? What did it look like? It was wilted, petals fell off of it. And basically the pastor, this wasn't Matt Chandler, this is, this is the worst sermon he's ever heard. Basically at the end he said, this is you. If you are used and abused, you let people into your life, who's going to want to touch you? 
You let sin touch you. You should feel ashamed of yourself. Who's going to want it? Who's going to want it? Who's going to want that? And Matt Chandler said, I should have stood up and screamed, Jesus wants the flower. Right? That's the point. What kind of gospel is it that says, you've been touched by sin so no one wants you? Jesus wants you. That's the greatest truth we have in this life. It's the love that's demonstrated us for God, that he laid down his life for us, not because we manipulated him to love us, or that we're worthy of it, but because he does. Ah. That gives us confidence. He doesn't need your payment. He doesn't need your manipulation. He just wants you to trust him. A church with such confidence in God's love that fills our thoughts, fills our minds, that we could reach out and sacrifice and not fear to love others. I mean, that's Zion. That's the culture of Zion that when people see, they say, that's God. This is God. Now, some people may be like, that's kind of scary. But I believe that people would be compelled by it. What would people say when people see God? I mean, Jesus said, by this, the world will know you are my disciples. If you have good theology, if you kill oceans by Hillsong, that's not even new, is it, anymore, right? That's, not, that's, old. that's old. I was about to say shine, Jesus, shine. Is that even Hills? It's 90s. How will people know you're... How will people see God? By what? By your love for one another. That's how. If you love. It's the greatest showcase of God. The intimate love that is shown in the people of God because this is where God is. And we think about, we're consumed with his love for us. Oh, I gotta say it. I gotta say it, because it's on my mind this week. I gotta say it, and then I'll fly through the last part. I think we even have to be careful of how we... This is where love should be made manifest most in this world. You know, I think it's... I think it's... I think it's... If we should feel shame for anything as a church... It's as if we built up a culture where people feel like they couldn't share the dirty things in their life because what would people think about me? This is the place where people, where people should show grace and love. Like, this is the place where people are like, I, I, can, I, can, I can reveal who I really am here because I know I'm going to be given grace. And if they're not, that's the, what we should be ashamed of. This is where love should be made manifest. We've even... Where I think we've even gone wrong is, it's like we've made marriage the ultimate version of love. No, this is supposed to be the ultimate version of love. We've made marriage the ultimate version of love and said, (laughs) this is where we have to be careful. Okay, I could go down, I'm not going to go far down this, this path. But we've often defined marriage as like, this is the ultimate form of love and companionship. Well, what does that mean for those who are single? Well, they can't experience love and companionship? Because they're not married? 
No, this is where you experience love and companionship because this is where our minds and thoughts are filled with the love of God. Probably some of you are married and you feel closer to people sitting beside you in church because your spouse isn't even here. And you might love your spouse, but this is where you're supposed to feel loved. Maybe even more than from your spouse. Oh, I could go on on that train, but we're not going to. Secondly, I gotta, I'm going to fly through this. Verse 10, as your name, O God, so your praise reaches to the ends of the earth. It says this, your right hand, which speaks of the action of God, your right hand is filled with righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. This is the place where righteousness fills our hands. So we act rightly and uprightly. This is the place where, the God, where God's righteousness reigns. We use the word righteousness a lot. It's used throughout the Bible a ton. It's a word we use a lot, but we probably wrongly define it. It's having a nature of being upright or just. Justice is probably the closest translation of righteousness. It's probably the most synonymous with righteousness. And it speaks to how God treats us and how we then treat one another. But it carries the idea of full human flourishing from being uncreated to now being created into something completely new. <laughs> righteousness isn't being right. Okay? <laughs> it's not like we're right and everyone else is wrong. That's not righteousness. Righteousness is the longing for the full restoration of God's creation. That ever we would see human flourishing in every capacity, in every family, in every human heart. That's righteousness. And at our core, that's what we were created to be. That's what the image of God means. That, we, that sense of righteousness and justice comes from him. And at our core, this is who we are. But of course, sin has corrupted that righteousness. And then that we can therefore be filled with selfishness, greed, and hate toward one another, which is the root of individual and then consequently national rage. But Zion is a renewed place where the righteousness of God is celebrated and lived out. And in contrast to the rage of the world, we see humans treat each other with dignity and respect and love. It's a lot more than being right. Even we have to be careful about things. Everyone's talking about Roe v. Wade and whether that's going to be stripped and I don't even know how it was leaked. I didn't even know that you could do that. It's not, it hasn't even happened yet and people assumed it's, it's, it's happened. But your take on abortion, oh man, I could talk about this for a while, but I'm happy that Roe v. Wade if it comes down. So I am at my heart pro-life. And by the way, I think Roe v. Wade is a poorly written law. There can be protection in other laws. Anyway, we get into all that. However, what we're seeing is much of conservatives who are pro-life say, we've done it. Successful. If Roe v. Wade is gone, it's illegal. We did it. But here's the deal. If, if they're still struggling moms, we haven't done it. Like if there's still moms who are stuck in the weight of this world, we haven't reached our goal. Because our goal isn't for something to be illegal. Our goal is to see righteousness lived out in the world. Our job is not done. That's why it's about more than being right. It's where mothers are cared for. And in the New Testament, righteousness isn't about being right. It's about caring for the orphan and the widow and the poor, this is the place where they are giving dignity and respect and support. From uncreation to new creation. 
finally, and I'm done. Sorry. Verse 11, let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Lastly, in a raging world, in a world full of confusion and mistrust, maybe that's most of the rage that goes on in our Western world where there's so much confusion and mistrust, you don't know what to believe, you don't know who to believe. Our thoughts are filled with God's love. Our hands are full of God's righteousness. And our voices are filled with God's truth. This is where we speak the truth. What is true in this world that will never change. This is where we rejoice because of the good judgments of God. Our voices are filled with what is true. This God who makes good judgments that can actually be trusted. Man, some of you have asked me, like, how can I trust? Again, I've seen churches. It's not an easy answer. Churches have hurt me. This is the place where Zion's supposed to happen. This is the place where we're supposed to be doing these things. The church is the one who's been corrupted. And the church is the one who's hurt me. And church has been the one who's been on a power trip against God. It's not an easy answer. I don't know if I have a great answer. I think we have to point to the only truth that we can trust. It's not found in me. It's found in God. It's found in the words of Jesus. That's the city. When a world comes in, this is what they're supposed to see, that love fills our thoughts, righteousness our hands, and good judgment is on our lips so that people would see and be like, whatever the reaction, this is God. It has to be. God, thank you so much for your word. Ah, Lord, there's there's not much we can do about nations raging. Nations are going to rage. We can pray for them. We can pray that you do the right thing, that you stop. But nations are going to rage in this world. May we as a church be a refuge. May we as a church be that Zion. That when the world sees it, they say, "That's that's where God is. This is God. By the love that's on our minds the righteousness in the way that we act toward one another and the way we speak the truth. And we point to the truth of Jesus Christ, not ourselves. May we be that refuge that the world seeks. Because this is about you. This is about you. love you. Pray for all these things in your name. Amen.